How do we know who's on the other side of a connection? Who it is that is logging into a computer or an account online? A lot of times we depend on usernames and passwords, but those really aren't enough. So we include other telemetry that seeks to authenticate that the entity logging in is who they say they are, such as their MAC address, their IP address, their geolocation. We're also moving towards unique human features, such as someone's face or someone's fingerprint, or even how fast someone types, their biometrics. In both of my books, I've taken a stand against biometrics as they are today. I'm just not convinced that a fingerprint or an image of a face is secure enough. And I've talked to enough people throughout the years who have shown me how they have defeated such systems. Take, for example, that German candy, gummy bears. It turns out that you can melt it down and use the sugary resin to simulate somebody's fingerprint. There's a whole episode of Mythbusters that's devoted to the walkthroughs and how you would recreate somebody's fingerprints. And vendors watching those shows have gotten wise and now measure for liveness, which includes temperature, moisture, etc. But a lot of those fingerprint systems are in the wild and they can still be fooled today with something as simple as a clear piece of tape. There's also facial recognition, where high-quality photos of a person you're trying to imitate can unlock your phone or open a door. Again, there are extra measures being applied. However, in some cases, you can just curve the photo and it will simulate the shape of a person's head. Once again, you see how such a simple method can defeat biometrics. Yeah, I'm a bona fide cynic. So, of course, when I heard that some researchers were presenting a talk at Sector 2021 in Toronto on defeating biometrics with artificial intelligence, well, I knew I had to talk to them. And in a moment, you'll hear what they have to say. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm not just throwing cold water on biometrics. I'm also discussing the scary but very real new world of machine learning and even AI being used by adversaries to simulate human behavior online in order to defeat behavioral biometrics and gain access to systems. Throughout all of Shakespeare's works, there's mistaken identity. Think about it. Characters could travel to a foreign country and adopt a new name, a new past, and carry on. Some with good reason. Some just to grift more. Without basic abilities to authenticate these characters, however, there would be no drama, no romance, no tragedy. So the ability to uniquely identify someone that's really interesting, and it's important. With books and devices, there's another side to this. Can you identify that there's a real human being on the other side of the keyboard? Alan Turing questioned this in the 1950s, and thus we have the Turing test, or what was originally known as the imitation game. The idea was to see whether a computer could possess a level of artificial intelligence that can mimic human responses under specific conditions. Now, if you can identify that there's a human on the other side of the keyboard, is that human who they say they are? In other words, if a criminal gets a hold of your credentials, could they imitate you? Well, yes, to a point. If you just use username and passwords, well, that's easily imitated. So that's why you need multi-factor authentication. Multi-factor authentication is where you just don't rely on one method. You layer it. And in security, we traditionally define the different factors of authentication as something you know, such as your username and password, or an answer to a security question. Then there's something you have, say a dongle or a chip within your physical credit card. And then there's something you are, something that is biological and uniquely you, 
That's biometrics. And there's a subset known as behavioral biometrics, which looks at unique ways that you as a human interact with a machine. To do behavioral biometrics correctly, systems must be good at capturing unique biological identifiers in the first place. And that's what anti-fraud systems look at, these behavioral identifiers. According to some researchers, however, some machine learning algorithms and AI systems today are so good at capturing these nuances that they are able to counterfeit those biological identifiers online and defeat the anti-fraud systems we may have in place. And that's not good. My name is Justin Macron, and I am a cybersecurity researcher. And I am Ian Patterson. I'm a cybersecurity professional, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I've been doing this for many years. Uh, my current role is uh, CEO of um, a cybersecurity firm out of Toronto called Secura. Um, Secura is a firm that specializes in very technical consulting. We would categorize ourselves as an offensive security company. Justin and Ian gave a talk at this year's Sector entitled Behavioral Biometrics, Attack of the Humanoid. It's about how machine learning and AI can be used to defeat behavioral biometrics. So to begin, what is biometrics? Biometrics is, is an umbrella term, right? Used to define how we can identify humans through different attributes. And, you know, we have different attributes like fingerprints and iris and the veins in back of your hand, facial recognition features, the way we walk, EKG, and all this kind of stuff. Um, it's biometrics, right? And then there's the one-off idea, the crazy thing that someone takes off and everyone starts using it. You left out uh, those of us who like to lick our phone screen, Justin. Um. <laughs> <laughs> We laugh now, but Samsung's making that a feature on like the uh, X25 when it comes out or whatever. You know, like that's that's going to be a thing. I wonder if the, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know how, how I feel with that about like with COVID and everything. You know? <laughs> it's probably not a good idea, but I'm just saying like, it's, uh, it wouldn't shock me. What are behavioral biometrics? Well, my focus is um, it's mostly in, in behavioral biometrics, the way that so so we have two hands and typically we use those hands and those fingers to, to press buttons on machines like like a keyboard or like a mouse and we move it right and with a phone you, you tap it and you swipe and you do all these things with it. and and that's really where my area of interests lies I, I wouldn't add much to what Justin said there. Biometrics really is uh, a thing that you are um, if we think of the different facets of uh, of 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 access or authentication, right? There's what you know, there's what you are, right? And what you have, right? And so biometrics really falls into that, what you are. There are some of them that can be time and location driven, such as your geolocation, right? Or what time of day it is sort of thing. And then you can marry those together to create profiles. What Ian's talking about is when you step up to some ATMs, for example, a bank can uniquely identify you. Some are using mobile passwords, and the geolocation from your device would further confirm that it is you standing in front of that ATM at that moment. But by and large, Justin really nailed it. Biometric really is the human side of it, um, you know, the biological side of it. Um, and the behavioral part really is how the human act interfaces with the machine or how a machine interprets human interface and interaction. And that is slightly different. Um, and part of what we do get into on the talk, like intent, um, is actually an interesting part of biometrics, um, whether you, or not you intend to, um, interface with the machine. Uh, is one of the, the considerations of biometrics and actually one of the ways that you see biometrics being attacked or um, bypassed uh, is, you know, through unintentional interaction with machines that use biometrics as an authentication process. And as mentioned, we've already seen some real world failures in biometrics. Well, one of my colleagues, a uh, brilliant guy out of, out of Germany, uh, Thomas Roth, um, 
so he's he's like a world-renowned hacker. He's a very very talented boy. Um, and one of his roommates, uh, I can't remember his real big kid name, but he goes by I think it's like Starscream or something like that on Twitter. It's the one who published the uh, the Iris attack against the the Samsung phones, for example, and that was like within a week of them releasing that that functionality, right? Like, and it you know it turned like it turned out to be a black and white printed photo that had had like, you know, some, some, I don't know, like a little bit of paste washed across it. So it was just like fuzzy enough that, you know, like the phone was like, Oh yeah, I think that's that guy, you know, like the phone squinting, like looking at this black and white photo that they're holding up. Like it was, it was actually the opposite of what you'd expect. You, you're like, Oh, you're going to have to build like a, a 3d model of the guy's head and it's going to have to be super precise. And he's like, no, actually we made it like really shitty. And, and, and suddenly it worked, you know, because you know, it, I guess it falls back on, well, maybe they're in a low light situation or something like that, right? Like you can't unlock your phone in the dark sort of thing this. Um, so examples of where we build in fail safes to the systems are another interesting example, right? And I don't know, what if you break your hand, you know, or like you break a finger or something like that? Is the system going to allow for the fact that you're typing with a bit of a limp, you know, to, to let you in? So similar thing there. Here's the part of the story that I want to know more about. How do we attack these systems? Perhaps we should further define what we're trying to attack. For example, what of us is actually measurable by a machine? We use biometrics primarily as an authentication mechanism, um, trying to think of other use cases, but largely the way that we have preferred to use it has been to unlock things, right? Uh, it is a physical human key. And so the ways that we're seeing it used you know, Justin rhymed off a bunch of the different uh, biometric uh, elements of, of, of human interaction and, and how those then get applied into the unlocking. Um, you know, you've got banks right now are really big on voice print. Um, if you've registered for online banking um, or, uh, sorry, telephone banking, um, then they're using voice print technology to pre-authenticate you when you call into the system. Um, so that way the customer service representative at the other end knows, um, with non-repudiation, um, and I use that term loosely, but, um, you know, non-repudiation being that we can trust that the original sender and the message are authentic. The National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, defines non-repudiation as an assurance that the sender of information is provided with a proof of delivery and that the recipient is provided with a proof of the sender's identity so that neither can deny having processed that information. With a level of non-repudiation that the person who's calling in to access the account information or make changes to the account is the person who they say they are. And so voice print technology has been um, you know, a real game changer in the uh, authentication and validation of uh, customer, customers at the CSR level in banks. Uh, because they can afford the technology, to be quite frank, um, and also just because of the call volumes. Ever call customer service, and when you finally reach a human being, they address you by your name? Certainly, they use your mobile number, and if you logged into your account, they have that information as well. But they also listen to your voice, and as you navigate the call center questions, authenticate your voice from the last time you called. You know, this call may be recorded for monitoring purposes. That's them seeking to create a unique voice print for you. There's the other obvious ones that Justin touched on, fingerprint. You know, everything's got a fingerprint scanner built into it these days. Iris, uh, we've seen that implemented in some phones once upon a time, facial unlock, and then the 3D kind of take on that. There's a bunch of different technologies there. I should probably mention that we're going to be talking about both the physical fingerprint on your hand and also the fingerprint of your internet browser or your IP address. These are two different things, of course, biological and mechanical, yet both define unique characteristics that could be used to uniquely identify you out of the billions of people in the world today. What's interesting is a lot of those technologies are built around common libraries, but then the implementation is different. So there's a bunch of companies doing it kind of their own spin on it, but they're 
largely leveraging one or two common libraries. And then there's some more boutique ones, you know, Justin mentioned like the vein analysis. Uh, that's one that we implement at our office in Toronto uh, to get into our lab. We have like one of those machines that scans the back of your hand. And then you get into like gate analysis, which is interesting. So secure facilities like data centers, or you get into government facilities that are controlled DOD, D&D type facilities. Here again, by scanning your palm, there's a unique collection of veins. Not even twins have the same vein patterns. That requires you to submit your palm or your finger or your iris. But are there passive means of biometrics where you don't have to do anything? If they want to validate that the person walking down the hall should be down walking down that hall and have access to the room that's coming up, um, then gate analysis can be applied to video feeds to analyze how that person moves and also so identify and authenticate that person as they get up to the door that they're coming to. So when you start to combine these, like gate and facial recognition, you get these black mirror episodes where someone walking down the street in a public sidewalk can be uniquely identified. Doesn't that just creep you out? Those are some of them. And then there's uh, a couple other interesting ones like EKG. Um, and, you know, like I have like a kind of a cool case study that I, I kind of whipped up when I was in healthcare that, that would have been applicable there. So maybe talk about that later. We'll get to the EKG stuff later in the episode. For now, though, suffice to say that there's stuff you might not realize in your office. For example, your keyboard metrics, such as how fast you type or what type of keyboard you use. If we take a look at, at a keyboard, you know, um, the way that, that we type keys and, and the way that we type sequence of keys together, common words like the, T-H-E, you know, we're, we're all going to type these kinds of, of, you know, words differently. And, and if we take a look at like longer words, we're going to type those also very differently. And if we take a look at like email addresses, for example, right, um, it's a guarantee that I'm going to type your email address very differently than you would just because you have that muscle memory built into it because you've typed it so many times. This is cool. For example, there might be two letters that are typed very quickly, but the others are spaced out. Or a string of adjacent letters, say if your name maps very nicely to a QWERTY keyboard, you might type that very quickly. The thing is, someone else can type your email address, but only you do it the way that it was recorded, so the system will recognize you. How accurate that is depends on the amount of data that you collect. If the system is light on data, it might easily be fooled. But if you're collecting large amounts of biometric data continuously, then that authentication can be very, very good. When it comes to like keyboard analysis, I think that the ability to use keyboard analysis or like multi-factor authentication is something that, that's very doable. And you don't require a wild amount of data to conduct that multi-factor authentication when it comes to like that multi-factor, hey, what's, what's your email? What's your password kind of when, when it comes to like more of a continuous authentication where we're actually constantly monitoring who's using that keyboard, that's when <laughs> you, you need to start collecting a lot of data um, just because you won't be able to match those patterns properly um, with the machine learning models that, that you use. Um, so that's, that's mostly on the keyboard side. And, and once again, like the way that you would capture that keyboard activity is also, is, will also yield different results and will yield different accuracy. In my first book, When Gadgets Betray Us, I talked with Dr. Neil Kravitz about keyboard analysis based on a presentation he gave at Black Hat in 2006. He said he was able to look at a chat log and just on the basis of random typing or drumming of random characters, he could determine a person's handedness. What? He said he could see when somebody was striking randomly that they were more likely to type on one side of the keyboard than the other. And he could also measure the frequency to determine which side of the keyboard was quicker than the other. Further, Kravitz could determine, based on the keyboard drumming, direction, either inside out or outside in, the likelihood that a person played a musical instrument. Today, we can get even more granular with behavioral biometrics. The accuracy of these predictions depends largely on the accuracy of the capture, which is what Justin is talking about. If you capture keyboard activity using an OS hook, 
um, you know, something that hooks right into the operating system like like Windows or Mac or Linux. The accuracy there is might be pretty good. If you use something like JavaScript, now we're more dependent on the browser to make those timestamp event logging. And, and as a result, you know, if your computer's running um, really high with CPU, there might be significant delays there. Good point. If your computer is making noises, if you're rendering a video or compiling code, this could alter the accuracy of the logging events on your machine. Another thing, you know, another problem with, with JavaScript is that you have browsers like Firefox. And, and I think that there's a real big push today towards enabling a more private browsing experience. And as a result, a lot of these browsers are starting to implement anti-fingerprinting techniques. And these anti-fingerprinting techniques are common if we take a look at like canvas fingerprinting, you know, there are browsers out there that just stop that kind of stuff, you know. In my second book with Kevin Mitnick, The Art of Invisibility, I talk a lot about Canvas, a technology that allows marketers to take the search term used in Google on your phone and link it to your desktop at home. So you could be looking up a winter coat on your mobile phone device on the train, and then when you get home on your desktop, see ads for that same winter coat. There are ways to turn that off. You can add extensions to your browser, for example. However, these anti-fingerprinting techniques can also mess up behavioral biometric collection. What's coming out today is anti-fingerprinting techniques that actually round up the timestamp to these keyboard events. And what that does is it basically makes it very difficult to monitor who's typing at a keyboard because all those events are, are being round up and, and a machine learning model just can't, can't get enough data to make those predictions. That's really on keyboard side of stuff. And I'd say that, that it's fairly similar when it comes to mouse. Um, the only caveat with mouse is that you need s like significant um, amounts of data um, and it's also less accurate than keyboard. By now, you're probably just taking your hands off the keyboard and will think twice about how you type going forward. It's an interesting world, what we can change and what we can't change. Character keys, you know, like the control shift alt keys, the, the cap lock keys, you know, those are all very good indicators of who's using that computer. And, you know, they, they are definitely used in, in, in the behavioral biometrics realm when it comes to keyboard monitoring. Um, they're very, very strong indicators of who's using that keyboard. Another area where we've seen behavioral biometrics is in the gaming industry. Say you want to take over somebody's account. On the internet, nobody knows you're a dog, but actually they do know something about you. If you're more hesitant to move or to move too quickly on the keyboard or the trackpad, these changes all get flagged. Maybe you are challenged to provide more credentials. Maybe you're locked out. But you mentioned the gaming industry. So we have seen like anti-cheat implementation, right? That has become very common in uh, gaming engines. And you, you're either seeing it deployed sometimes like at the individual game level, or you're seeing like kind of a uniform anti-cheat system being deployed. Um, Steam has one, for example. I think Epic's got one. Um, so it's like an SDK essentially that game developers can build into to their games or layer on top of their games to identify bot type behavior. Less so on the keyboard side of things, but absolutely on the mouse input side of things, they're looking for uh, mouse movements where it, the mouse movement is too rapid and too precise um, for a human to really do that. And so you've got then the hackers, cheaters, um, who, who are developing these uh, cheat, uh, cheat tools, right? Largely aimbot type, type tools um, that are trying to introduce randomization of mouse movement into uh, into those engines so that they don't get snapped by the uh, by the anti-cheat uh, engines. So it's an arms race. You develop the anti-cheat method and they develop a system to defeat that. Hmm. Where have we heard that before? The analysis of what's going on with the mouse um, is only a part of it. They're also looking at system hooks. They're looking at 
processes that are being injected to looking at file sizes on the machines, all these things to try and counteract the, the, the cheating stuff. But on the biometric side of it, it absolutely is user input that they're trying to look at and saying, you moved the mouse in an exactly straight line to that guy's head, you know, like to, you know, or to, to the hit box of that user. Um, and they can also spot like randomization that's not truly random because the entropy of these things can't be all that random um, because you're always going for the hit box, right? If the user has like a consistent 94% hit rate across 10 rounds, then you have a pretty good idea that this person's cheating. So that can be analyzed through the biometric input. So here's the intersection with their talk. Given that humans are capable of infinite randomness, can a machine ever hope to approach that? Ian mentioned randomness and, and like he hit the nail on the head there. It's, 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 it's really machines today, I think are getting better at simulating human behavior. And, and I think we're going to get to a point where what Ian just described with, with these, you know, interfaces trying to maybe prevent or, or try to, to detect abnormal usage, I, I think that might start coming to an end. So let's define the difference between what we call artificial intelligence, AI, and machine language, or ML. Uh, I'm stealing a saying. Um, if you have a PowerPoint deck, then you have machine learning, and if you have Python, you have AI. I think that's the difference. <laughs> Justin's the expert. That's just a, a bad joke that I, I, I really <laughs> enjoy and wanted to throw in there. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that that AI is is really used as as an umbrella term to talk about machines that make decisions. And, and a decision on a computer can be really simple, right? It can be like an if state. And to be honest with you, like everybody has their own different idea or definition of what AI is. But at its core, what I believe is that artificial intelligence are just computers making decisions. And those decisions can be very complex or they can also be very simple. And then what then is machine learning? When we're talking about machine learning, though, now we're actually talking about um, models. And, and these models can be different kinds of models, right? We have grade-inducing, we have RNNs, we have deep neural networks, we have all kinds of different things. And that's where I like to kind of like draw the line where, okay, AI is an umbrella term. What do you mean by AI, right? So, so that's a question that I, I typically ask when someone says, oh, we use AI. What, what do you mean? use AI, like, like what kind of AI, right? And then machine learning within the machine learning space. Now you're talking about many different kinds of models and all these kinds of models are used for different things. And there are some models that are used for, you know, natural language processing to, to, to convert um, speech to text. And there's other kinds of models that are meant for like image recognition. And there are other kinds of models that are really good at like predicting tabular data. And there are other kinds of models that are really good at predicting time series data. Um, so when, when we talk about machine learning, you know, we're talking about a bunch of different models that are used to predict um, activities or generate activities based on um, historical events. So machine learning can be thought of as templates or models that you use to employ for specific goals. So there are systems that are designed to defeat those? So systems that are designed to defeat biometrics, maybe, I don't know, Ian, are, are, are you familiar with any ways that people are, um, well, of course you are, <laughs> where people are actually defeating biometrics in general? I mean, sure. Yeah. I mean, if we think about our daily use of most websites, you usually are, you know, any, any of the big sites, you are usually running up against some sort of captcha whether or not it actually jumps out and gets in your face or not um, is based on a bunch of behavioral things that are happening on your machine that may or may not include your input so we have some real world examples of this one of them for example well-known example is uh ticketmaster claim to try and stop scalpers and bots from <laughs> uh gobbling up all the tickets and reselling them um i 
don't really believe that they do that, but um, they they do claim to have technology in place and, and use that technology aggressively. Um, some of that technology is looking for the user behavior on the web page, right? So when you're on the web page, there is actually JavaScript running in the background that is capturing mouse input, mouse movement, and things like that, and looking for you jumping from one spot to another, right? So using a bot to fill fields and fill forms right? Um, that is one of the most common ways that um, technology is being used to defeat, uh, you know, the, the intended use of these sites, right? Which is by a normal person filling in fields and buying tickets. Um, other major sites are using it too, like eBay to stop people from like sniping uh, auctions and stuff like that. Um, and then, it's become kind of a, I don't want to say commoditized, but a fairly common security feature for people to put it in place, similar systems in place in front of other sites that have like um, rewards programs or coupons or anything like that, um, because you want to stop abuse. You want to stop the ability for um, automation to that, that defeats the, the human inter you know, intended human input on the site um, from either, you know, defrauding the site, giving the user ability to like stuff credentials or stuff, uh, you know, try test accounts multiple times, all those things. So um, that's really the most common implementation that we see right now on the web is those, um, you know, botnet defeating WAF type of implementations um, where you have some sort of layer of usually JavaScript running on a site uh, that, that's interacting uh, with the user inputs. Okay, so there's this bot-busting JavaScript. We, we got those kinds of solutions running in the background, um, or at least like large organizations will like Ticketmaster because you know they say that they don't like scalpers. But there's a real strong push today with you know organized crime and, and and nation states to, to, to bypass this kind of stuff. And that's just the reality. Um, you know, so what's, what's happening is that a, a more advanced implementations of this kind of technology, which is behavioral biometrics, they're taking a look at how humans interact with computers, you know, they're, they're detecting if a certain behavior is human and if other kind of behavior is not. If an adversarial actor wants to simulate user behavior, they'd use very similar techniques that a behavioral biometrics firm would use to detect abnormal usage. This is not the first time that we've seen security tools used against victims. Typically what happens is if a behavioral biometrics firm were to come in and say, hey, you know, we're going to protect you with account takeover and, you know, we're going to do this kind of stuff. There's like a training period there that's required. Right. Machine learning has to be taught over and over until a pattern is formed. So if it's multi-factor authentication, maybe the user needs to enter their email and password a few times, you know, three, four, five, 10, 12 times, depending on which machine learning model they got running. If it's continuous authentication, now maybe the user needs to use their computer for a long period of time. And when I say long, it's very much usage-based. Um, so it could take a few days, it could take a few weeks. Who knows? It really depends on what machine learning model they're running. The same then is true with attackers. They need to train their systems as well. As an attacker, you could kind of use the same techniques to simulate that kind of human behavior. So if I want to simulate my own typing, for example, what I would do is I would, this is something that I have done. Um, you know, I, I, I set up a, a keylogger on my computer and I record every single key along with a timestamp associated with it. So here's an example where a good actor, a researcher, is using a bad actor's tradecraft, a keylogger, to learn more about criminal hackers. What that gives me over a period of weeks, well, oh, you know, over a period of, of, of one week, it gives me a really good typing pattern. And it allows me to really see, you know, how I type on my computer, how I type different kinds of words, how I press the shift key, how long I press the shift key for, um, and I could do the same thing with a mouse, how I move my mouse, right? And what I can do is, you know, I could feed that kind of data into a machine learning model, 
and output simulated key activity with the same kind of, you know, tempo and rhythm that a real human, me, would would use. Okay, that's creepy. And yet, ridiculously simple. That's ultimately where it's going to go. We've seen machine learning platforms being used by adversaries in order to automate, uh, let's say, phishing campaigns, like very compelling phishing campaigns, targeted ones, botnets that are being used on social media sites and on you know professional networking sites like LinkedIn in order to target specific groups, specific actors, specific individuals or specific groups of individuals, I should say. And those are all being done through natural language processing and you know automation using machine learning. So that's already happened. So far, we've talked about how we type, how we behave online. But this has a potential as well in other areas, such as training systems for malware. No doubt they're also using machine learning for other purposes that, you know, we would use on the the security research side, like exploit development and research, right? So if that's happening and we're going to move towards machine learning as part of the authentication process, um, then it only tracks that your adversary is also going to take that technology and look to reverse engineer how you're using it and figure out how to use it against you. Now it's going to take them some time and there's going to have to be weaknesses in the implementations and all those things that factor into, you know, normal adversarial offensive conditions of behavior, but we'll get there. Um, And soon it'll be really hard to tell uh, a user at the keyboard or at the mouse from a bot or, you know, AI ML driven, I guess, entity Um, at the keyboard and mouse because of the use of the machine learning on the adversarial side. That's where we will eventually end up. Um, It's not going to apply for every type of authentication, but they will eventually be able to emulate a lot of it, um, especially anything that's human input. Boom. That's incredible to think that a machine could replicate human behavior online to conduct, say, account takeovers at a financial institution. A machine could emulate human randomness to the point where anti-fraud systems wouldn't necessarily pick it up. And this is starting to happen today with voice print technology. We had somebody reach out to us and actually ask us, um, could you under some circumstance, prove that the voice on a recording is legitimate. And we reached out to some companies that work in that space, right? Who do voice print. And we're like, would you trust your system if this like was for a court case, right? Because this was the nature of the inquiry. Would you trust your system to potentially validate that this is the, the person who, you know, we believe it is on the recording. Nobody wanted to like put their system on the line for that particular purpose. Um, I don't blame them for not wanting to take that risk, but, you know, we've seen the the power of um, that system that Adobe has, right? And that can basically take a couple of voice clips and then create a very compelling, uh, you know, natural speech emulation. So there's another example of that system where it, I don't know if it would hold up. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to almost call my bank and test it myself <laughs> uh, just to see if it, if it fools them. You know, um, what he's talking about is something called Adobe Voco, which is an unreleased audio editing and generating prototype software that enables novel editing and generation of audio. It's been dubbed Photoshop for voice, and it was first premiered at Adobe Mac in 2016, but it is not yet commercially available. To perform such a Photoshop for voice remains a very expensive proposition. For the moment, the average Joe doesn't really need to worry about these attacks yet. Yeah, I think that early on, um, we're probably going to see like very targeted attacks. And you're right. Um, you know, these, these models need to be trained in the cloud. Um, you know, like it needs a lot of memory and GPU and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, however, once a model is trained, 
it could be pretty small, right? And and it could be deployed on a client device with with a relatively low memory footprint. So so that's that's one area of concern. I think that over time too, um, you know, there are going to be problems that that come to the surface where maybe over time what we do is we collect enough data over a period of time to say, hey, you know, based on the first few keystrokes that this user is is inputting, we're able to determine that this is kind of his typing pattern overall without the need to collect one week's worth of data for that one user, just because we've already collected so much data from so many other users that now we're able to make those kinds of, of predictions. So everything, when it comes to machine learning, everything is related to data and everything is related to the amount of data you can collect and the amount of time it takes to collect and how expensive it is to collect. And early on, I think it's going to get, it's going to be expensive. And over time, I think those costs are going to decrease and it's going to be more commoditized. So you could have an Internet of Things device, small, simple, dedicated to learning how you type, how you speak, how you behave. And you could have a device that routinely answers your spam calls or responds to emails online without your direct interaction. I'll share a little bit more about what may be a fun story that, that's going to happen at Sector. The demo that, that we're going to be showing is a live adversarial machine learning attack on one of the largest multi-factor authentication providers out there, just to show, you know, that this is happening today. This is not something that's far-fetched. This is not something that, you know, is going to happen a decade from from now. Like adversarial machine learning models are here today and it's here to stay. And they're only going to get better with time. And it's really, really important for, for organizations that are implementing, like, like, I feel that a lot of people use AI and they label, they, they use it as a blanket term to, to put over all these different things. And at the end of the day, even when you are using AI, it doesn't mean it's, it's, it's going to be a more secure system. So we're living in a world now with devices that have our fingerprints, that have our iris scans, that have our voice prints. What are we to do about that? Once you have that biometric fingerprint, it is unique to the human. You can't revoke it. And this is the problem with biometrics, right? Like I can't train myself to type differently or I could, but it'd be very awkward, right? And you know, to use the mouse differently, just the way that I can't change my irises and I can't change my fingerprints, <laughs> not without going all seven on you, you know, shaving them off. Um, so, think of Kaiser Soze at the end of *Usual Suspects* when he walks out of the police station and changes his gait as he moves further and further away from the camera. I would argue that you can keep this up for a little bit, but in the end, you will revert back to your natural gait. These are some of the challenges around biometric authentication that we as an industry have to think about. And, you know, if we get to the point, as Justin said, where based on five to 10 keystrokes, you can very quickly ascertain how a user is going to type and make a predictive model around that with like, I don't know, 95% certainty, which would probably be good enough for the system. Right. Because you don't want these things being so false positive written that they're always chirping. Um, then, you know, you're back to square one. <laughs> People do, however, change. We're not a steady state. We have accidents, which could change our faces or our fingerprints. Or we just age naturally and deviate just slightly from the 20-year-old version of ourselves captured in ones and zeros. When it comes time to implementing these systems, I think it's really important to always, you know, be very data-focused and and not only to rely on on the first uh, first amounts of data collected to build the model, but also maybe to continuous continuously improve that model over time, right? Um, over a period of weeks and, and months and, and years, and and over time too, maybe that initial data is off, and and it's okay to dismiss it. 
if those variations in data aren't too far off, right? Um, at the end of the day, I don't know if people age, like I'm, I'm not an aging expert by any means, but as people age, I'd, I would assume that people do so slowly um, over time and, and you'd, it, it wouldn't cause too much of a variation. I, I, I haven't given that, you know, an incredible amount of thought. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, Ian, if, if, if you have any thoughts about this whole aging thing and, and you know, psychology behind this. Like there is absolute like validity in what you're asking. So in the keystroke analysis stuff, I, I, I'm honestly not too sure, but you're right. Like, you know, I don't know if people would, have, you'd slow down probably over time, right? Like just the dexterity in your hand starts to go. And I, I think it might not even be age for some of us. It's carpal tunnel because we've been stuck at keyboards for 20 years, right? So <laughs> this is the, uh, this is the new miners lung or something like that. You know, we've all got RSI. Um, <laughs> but um, no, for, for example, like the gait analysis stuff I was talking about, absolutely. Somebody gets a hip knee replacement, right? It's going to change their gait permanently. And you're going to have to retrain the model for those individuals. Um, same goes for you know, things like people who suffer some sort of facial deformity, you know, in an accident or something like that, uh, you're going to have to retrain the model for those individuals for facial rec. So, um, you know, they're, they're, they're not foolproof systems. I think some of the interactive ones, like the keystroke and mouse and stuff like that, I think to your point, what you'll see is more of a gradual degradation of it. Um, so the question then is, how frequently do you renew essentially the uh, the initial key, right? That you create or the initial hash value or whatever, however you want to describe it, the seed that was used to fingerprint that person. Um, how frequently should you update that? Um, you know, should it be maybe once a year sort of thing? Um, because you don't want to do it too frequently because if you do then eventually have an attacker or some, you know, some or some other user that's able to emulate that user, you could end up training it that the adversary is the real user if you do it too frequently. Yeah, sometimes you're opening the door for an emulation attack by having a user frequently update their settings. Maybe there should be some standard deviation model so that if an attacker did try this, it would discount or at least challenge further because it didn't fit the aging curve that had been modeled out. Um, but yeah, some sort of true up of the, uh, of the user against that initial seed over time certainly would make sense in, in systems like these. And we don't take that into account these days with traditional authentication systems. We just trust that the user is the user forever in most systems, right? Um, you know, even most identity and access management practices, it's like, it's a, there, there's a validation that the user maybe still works for the corporation, right? But if the person does continue to log in every day, um, then there usually isn't some sort of need for the attestation because the account hasn't aged out. Um, you know, if anything, people become fearful of disabling accounts that have been logging in every day for 20 years because it might break something. So, um, you know, that's something that we don't do today with traditional uh, authentication. With the biometric behavioral based authentication, we do need to do it to factor in for what you've described there. So we talked earlier about EKGs. I have a cool use case that um, you know that I ran across several years ago. Um, so there's a company out of Toronto that was developing a biometric uh, EKG uh, band, right? Like wearable, just like your Fitbit sort of thing. And the purpose of it though was authentication. And I thought this was amazing. I was working at the time in a hospital setting and Authentication is a huge problem in those settings for a variety of reasons. You have swivel chair um, access to multiple systems. You have, um, uh, you know, a nursing staff that's on continuous rounds throughout the building and may need to log in at different terminals across the place. Um, you know, you've got volunteers, you've got uh, different shift schedules, et cetera, et cetera. So the person sitting at a keyboard at any given time 
your ability to ascertain that that person is who they say they are is like very low compared to most traditional nine to five type of shops where somebody has an assigned keyboard and mouse. And a huge part of the problem that we were trying to solve for always was the cost of doing password resets. So here's an example of where good security sometimes goes bad, where you have strong passwords, but sometimes people forget or they get confused or whatever. So the company IT department spend a lot of times doing password resets, which if you're on the receiving end of a ticket is not that interesting of work and it's costing the company a lot of money and time. So what if there was a better way to authenticate the user? That organization had a service desk of say 15 people and the metrics that we were tracking showed us that 50% of the time that those 15 people spent was dedicated to password resets, right? The, the math to that is, is, is terrible when it comes to the cost. Um, and, and so I started looking at these alternative methods of authentication that could potentially work in a, a hospital setting. Um, fingerprint scanners at the time were not a common item. Like it, it's still hard to get a keyboard with one built in these days that I'm aware of, unless it's on a laptop. Um, we didn't want to deploy laptops through the building because it was too easy to steal them, things like that. And, you know, they age out quick uh, or get damaged. The other thing too, is we had tried some fingerprint scanners like the uh, USB um, type standalone ones at one, one point. Um, and we found that a certain percentage of the population they didn't work very well with. Oh yeah. This is a dirty little secret about biometric solutions. They don't always work with every ethnic type in the world, be it skin color or even the density of the skin. Often, it's not until these things are out in the real world that manufacturers or vendors realize that they just didn't test it on enough people. We found that certain part of the, the, the nursing population, primarily people from like an Asian heritage, the fingerprint scanners wouldn't recognize them properly. And we don't really know why. It was just like a common trait. And we think it... I don't know, something to do with like skin density or something like that, right? Like on their hands or something like that. But it just didn't work right for that particular segment of the nurse, which is a big segment of the nursing population. So it's not like we hadn't tried some stuff. But the other problem with that too was just like like sterility of those scanners and stuff like that. Like there's people walking around with gloves all day. You don't want to have to take them off necessarily to touch this thing. And then suddenly they got to go wash their hands again you know, other reasons. So, right. So you're wearing gloves to stay sterile, but then you have to peel them off just to swipe your fingerprint so you can log in some information on your laptop. Oh, that's going to get old real quick. But this, this EKG bracelet came out and it would allow for authentication to devices continuously over wireless protocols, as long as you were wearing the band and you were within proximity to it. And I thought that was a really cool solution. The band is tied to the user and authenticates to the user based on the EKG, which is unique. So if somebody steals your band and puts it on, it's not going to authenticate to you because you don't have the same EKG as that person. And then your ability to authenticate to the machine is based on proximity. Obviously, you would have to try and manage that, um, you know, the radio frequency challenges and proximity of machine. You want to make sure, as I went back to earlier when I said intent to uh, interface with the device, then would have to be established, right? Right. This is a classic shoulder surfing situation. Only in the, this case, it's electromagnetic. You couldn't have somebody standing 50 feet away from a machine who has authorization to use that device. And I sidle up to the keyboard while they're standing, looking the other way. And I log in because they happen to be standing close. That would be a problem. So you'd have to work out how to solve for that and make sure that the user has to interface with the machine in some way. So multi-factor authentication here, you know, but it, it seemed like a unique offering and way to solve for that password reset problem that was costing that hospital, you know, probably in the neighborhood of millions of dollars based on some of the math that I had done, um, you know, over a period of, of a year or two, based on the number of people you have, time lost, the, uh, you know, downtime on machines or inability to access machines that are medical and have billing purposes, all those things, right? If uh, the person who's supposed to be running the lab analyzer gets locked out, right, then that lab analyzer can't do their, can't do the thing. And that's, that's billing for the hospital. So 
So I thought that was a really interesting use case. Um, that company, I think it was very early when I had started reaching out to them and talked to them. Um, from what I've heard later on, they went on to work in the pharma space. And so the application there is similar to what I had suggested. And it's people working on the production line in the pharma space. So you can use the device to establish non-repudiation that the technician who, you know, put the materials necessarily make the pharmaceutical into the machine and went from machine A or, you know, part A of the line to part B of the line is the same person that's supposed to be there because their identity is tied to the bracelet, which is constantly authenticating them. Right. And I think that's a great application for, for that type of, uh, for that type of device. So that's a cool use of behavioral biometrics for authentication purposes, you know, and you could also, the behavioral part, you can apply anomaly detection around the way that that user is constantly authenticated to different parts of the process, right? So if you know that employee A only ever interfaces with station A, B, and C, and machines A, B, and C, and suddenly they're over at machine B for 30 minutes doing something weird, you've got an anomaly and you can investigate that, right? Are they on a long coffee break chatting to somebody or you know, are they actually tampering with the aspirin that you're making? Um, so you know, that gives you that opportunity to identify unusual behavior because you have, you have that uh, analysis and you can tie them back, tie the user back to the uh, normal behaviors. So that's one example of what I thought was a really cool application of behavioral biometrics um, and where it could be used um, for authentication at a continuous level. So what are some best practices that we should consider with behavioral biometrics? I think that based on the the generate, like, because I, I, I've done like keyboard generation, mouse generation. Based on the generation that I've done, there are areas of interest that may allow an organization to detect adversarial, like repetitive adversarial machine learning attacks. Maybe not one, but like repetitive ones may be able to be detected an area of interest where potentially an AI can, can, you know, take a look at another AI and say, Hey, you know, um, what's happening over here. But overall, I think that having like a multi-layered approach to cybersecurity is really the only way to, to really secure ourselves because no one layer is going to do it. I think that behavioral biometrics is is, is a really nice layer to have um, because it, it does add, you know, security to systems that are already secure and that already have, you know, good use cases, like best practices and all this kind of stuff. You know, given the right environmental factors, it can be bypassed. So multi-layered approaches for the win. Ian? I work for an offensive security company. We don't fix problems. We just make problems. So. <laughs> I agree with Justin, um, defense in depth, you know, it's been around for a long time. It's, you know, there's a reason people are believers in it. Any good security operations program um, certainly is going to take advantage of multiple controls. I do believe that authentication has seen some good overhauls in the last decade. MFA adoption is great. And now, you know, we're getting into the use of uh, devices like YubiKeys and using standards like FIDO. Um, those are terrific and very hard to defeat, uh, systems, uh, for authentication for, you know, you asked a great question earlier, man on the street. Is this something that they should be worried about? Not so much high value individuals, uh, people who work in the intelligence community, you know, people who are part of, uh, I guess, uh, at risk, um, I don't know, like groups, um, you know, like, uh, that are targeted journalists and stuff like that. Yeah. You're starting to get into this kind of stuff is going to become problematic for you. And so you need to adjust your threat profile and the way that you behave to account for the possibility of these things. Um, you know, going back to the voice print one, um, I see that becoming a problem, for example, for executives, um, you know, who 
maybe people who give a lot of presentations and stuff like that. So it's really easy for me to get a hold of your voice sample um, and to potentially fake to your bank that I am you, right? And then I want to open a new account or a new card or something like that. That's going to be problematic. Some of the stuff that we're talking about here, like with the keystroke analysis and mouse analysis, um, it's going to be a blended approach, like a blended attack utilizing other factors um, to gain access to systems initially, and then implement these types of uh, methods to defeat uh, these biometric control systems. Um, you know, there's, there's, or these types of adversarial approaches are going to be used against, as we've talked about, the public-facing web, you know, services that uh, that we rely on. That for sure is going to happen, and so. Um, those types of systems are going to have to step up their game um, to be more aware and better protected against these things. Um, and then, you know, the high risk individuals who have a particular threat profile, they're going to have to adopt additional controls that also factor for these types of things. I'd really like to thank Justin and Ian for coming on the show to talk about behavioral biometrics and more importantly, how machine learning and artificial intelligence today is getting better at simulating human activity online, which only means we have to get better at creating our anti-fraud technology, which only means, oh, well, you kind of know where this is going, don't you? Nonetheless, we do need research such as this to stay ahead of the bad actors. Let's keep the conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on Reddit or Discord. The deets are available at hackermind.com. The Hacker Mind is brought to you every two weeks, commercial free, by For All Secure. For the Hacker Mind, I remain the biometrically skeptical Robert Vimosi.